Good morning. How's everyone doing? Excellent. Excellent. You know what's what's amazing is that we can uh, come every Sunday, we can sing, we can study about the fact that our Savior is risen. We can go to Israel and see the empty tomb, and it doesn't change the fact that He is still alive. In fact, that's the best news the entire world has ever heard is He's alive, right? And I never get tired of it. Because it's good news. It will be good news for all eternity. Jesus Christ is alive. Alive and well. And He is coming back and we look forward to His return. An actual return. Not some mystical, spiritual, nebulous return, but an actual return that you can see. The whole world will see. Amen? Amen. So, um, if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We are... We are in a spiritual warfare series, which I don't normally do series. I normally do books of the Bible, So, but the Lord led me to this uh, sort of in between our other book studies. Um, and I'm taking my time in this because it's such a, a uh, prevalent, uh, uh, relevant topic. And we're actually going through a passage of Scripture, but I'm also taking my time with that because, well, here's the thing. We're always going to be in the Bible. <laughs> so don't ever say, when are you going to finish with this? Because I'll always be in the Bible. So there's no rushing, like we're going to go to another book. So as long as we're in the Bible, and sometimes we're going to do snorkeling, and sometimes we're going to do deep sea, into the trenches, you know, scuba diving. It doesn't matter. We're going to be in the Word. And if I'm not in the Word, slap me, okay? Anyway. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> Sharon's like, you have permission. <laughs> Ephesians 6, I'm going to read verses 10 through 20. That's our, our main thing, but we're going to focus still on verse 11. Now, I'll finish, I'll promise next week we'll go on to the other verses. Just <laughs> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of of the devil. That's the phrase we're going to... One more week of camping out on this phrase because I think it's significant. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel peace, in addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith with which you are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, also receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the Spirit, and to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, as well as on my behalf, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains so that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul finishes up 
this wonderful letter to the Ephesians concerning spiritual warfare. Contextually, it follows after discussion about relationships. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit your husbands. Children will be your parents. Slaves, master, the whole thing, right? And he gets into the spiritual warfare discussion at the end. But here's the thing is, is spiritual warfare is all around us, right? And we started looking at this several weeks ago about some lessons. The first lesson, of course, was that Jesus Christ is the victor. When he was not nailed on the cross, what looked like defeat was actual victory. What looked like the enemy overcoming was actually playing into God's plan because he disarmed those enemies by nailing those those sins, those, those things against us have been nailed to the cross. And here's the thing, either they're nailed to the cross for Jesus to bear. That means your sins are either with Jesus on the cross or they're on you. And if you don't accept what Jesus Christ did with bearing your sins, that means that you have to bear your sins, which means that's an eternity of punishment in hell forever and ever. And that's not good. You don't want to be there. Don't say, well, you know, it's, it's, you know, that's good for somebody. That's all. No, 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 you understand. This is, this is eternal. Isn't there, you know, you're reasoning why the devil doesn't want people to hear the gospel or receive the gospel or hear the good news? You'll do anything else but allow you to hear the good news because the good news is wonderfully good news. And Jesus says, whosoever comes, right? And whoever comes to me, I will no way cast away, right? That's, that's, we're talking about lives here. We're talking about eternal souls here. Amen? So, here, so we looked at that, and we looked at other lessons. We looked at, uh, I lost my train of thought, lessons. Christ was the victor. What was the second one? You can't do it. Strength begins in weakness. Be strong in the Lord, and the strength of the... So how do you be strong? It's not in your own strength. It's being strong in the Lord. And if you're strong in the Lord, you've got to be when you're weak in yourself first. All right? And then we started looking at some of the schemes and, and the scheme of how he attacks the mind. He attacks how and what you think. All right? We started looking at that. And then we looked at the timing of the temptation that he brings. Because temptation is a big scheme of his. And when does he do that? All right? And then last week, we look at the, the appeal, because the temptation always an appeal. It's like, hey, that's attractive, right? There's something, okay, how many of you are fishermen? Okay, do you just put the hook in the water? No, you dress it up with something attractive, bait. Bait, or fisherwomen, right? The appeal of temptation, that's what we looked at last week. Now today is this. I want to look at how the enemy approaches the approaches the enemy of bringing a person down. So the, the, the goal is to stand firm. Look at verse, you got verse, uh, verse 11, stand firm. Again, verse 13 and 14, the whole goal is to stand firm. His goal is to cause you to move away from Christ, to deny Christ, to depart from Christ, or never come to Christ. And he'll have different ways he does it. And my question is, what are the approaches he uses? It's very subtle, okay? So we'll look at a, f- a few of them, and, and then we'll, we'll close up. So how does the devil, how does the enemy approach bringing a believer down? First of all, compromise. He approaches you to compromise. It's the little-by-little little approach, right? Sometimes it's all out, but then the compromise approach is, 
just a little nudge in the wrong direction. Just a a little twist, right? He doesn't send the whole army across the border necessarily. He might send scouts to blend in. And then more scouts. See, we talk about an open borders policy in our country. Some of us have open borders in our lives, spiritually. You'll let anything in. It, it doesn't have to be an out and out, openly erroneous teaching or idea. It could be very subtle. A little here, a little there. Just a little nudge, right? And he has you off course. Spiritually, some of us are so wide open, we're open to any influence and all kinds of influence. And here's what the, the devil does, is before you know it, he has control. Before you know it, you're doing things like, how did I drift so far? I remember I go to the beach with my kids, you know, and we go boogie boarding. <laughs> and I always set up a, a tent on the beach. And when you go boogie boarding, you know how it goes is, you start drifting. And before you're like, where's our stuff? Oh, it's way over there. How did we? I didn't realize that every time that the waves are just kind of gently pushing us a different. See, if you don't keep Jesus Christ as the center of your life at all times and always look, okay, where, where, where am I at? Is this lining up with Christ? Right? See, he'll lead you down that, that narrow, windy stairway never telling you where it ends. You have no idea how far it goes. Or it's like you're at Disneyland and you're in that crazy... They designed those lines at Disneyland to make you feel like you're actually getting closer, but then you turn a corner and you realize there's more of it and then you realize there's more. He just, That's what he does, right? At first, what you're doing or giving into seems harmless. Hey, it won't hurt. Who's this going to hurt? Paul writes to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were so proud that they have they had a man who was sleeping with his stepmom and they were like oh we're full of grace and paul's like kick him out because now everyone's gonna want to do that that's gross he says your boasting is not good don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough some of y'all are bakers in here you work with leaven doesn't take much I don't. I just eat the stuff, you know? (laughs) A little leaven, a little compromise. I was thinking about this. I saw a movie about Nazi Germany, about it's just just terrible things that happened there. And I was thinking, it's like, how does a country go from Martin Luther and the Reformation and strong churches there, obviously that's in the 1500s, to the early 1900s, that's 400 years. But how does that happen? It doesn't happen overnight. To being strong in the Lord, strong in theology, right? The center of that to being now completely opposite and killing people, wiping, pe- wiping out Jewish people. How does that happen? It doesn't happen overnight. It's very subtle. Go with me to, um, to Exodus chapter 34. Go with me to Exodus 34. <clears throat> Uh, God warns the Israelites about this. Um, and uh, verse 10. 
Exodus 34.10, Then God said, Behold, um, I'm going to cut a covenant before all your people. I will do wondrous deeds which you have not created, which have not been created in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I'm about to going to do with you. Be sure to keep what I'm commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. Beware, here's it is, there's a, beware lest you cut a covenant or make an agreement with the inhabitants of the land. In other words, you go in there, and I'm going to drive those people out, but there's people that you may meet, and you're going to want to make an agreement. Lest it become a snare in your midst. He's warning them that if they begin to make agreements, they will begin to compromise. Watch this. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and shatter their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. These were uh, things of worship. They had things called high places and they had statues and, all, and altars and they would sacrifice things to those gods. You want your crops to grow? Hey, sacrifice to this god, God Baal, right? So he says, be aware, for you shall not worship any other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you cut a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invite you to eat of his sacrifice, and you take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons to play the harlot, the harlot with their gods. It goes on through. Be careful not to make agreement with the inhabitants of the land, the world. Yeah, that's, right. that's compromise. Why is the church so ineffective? Because we're no different than the world. You wonder why, why do Jewish people, they dress and eat differently? The whole point, and why do they, you know, you can't mix linen and cotton or, you know, rayon. They don't have rayon back there. But, you know, they, they, they were to be entirely separate from head to toe, inside and out, to testify our God is completely different. Your God has nothing to offer us. Compromise. Solomon, who built the temple, Solomon builds the temple. Solomon is chosen by God. Hey, you're my king. Solomon, what do you want? Anything. Solomon says, I'm young. And I'm going to lead your people. I need wisdom. God says, I'll give you wisdom. And because you didn't ask for riches, I'm going to give you riches as well. And Solomon became very wise and very wealthy. And he builds the temple of God. But then he started marrying foreign women from these other uh, surrounding places that then the scriptures just turned his heart away from God. First Kings 11 says that Solomon killed, or killed, loved rather, many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh and Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, and Hittite, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. And that's what happened. And he has hundreds of wives and concubines. And eventually, here's what happened. Solomon 
begins and he builds high places, places of worship across from Temple Mount at the Mount of Olives. You say, if it can happen to Solomon, it can happen to any of us, and we have to beware. Oh, it's just subtle. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, Paul says, you know, you're not to associate with, you know, like he says, he says, yeah, you're, don't take on their practices. Yeah, be in the world as salt and light. But now when you start taking on their practices, their way of thinking, you're no different. Many Christians don't even know what or why they believe. Many Christians have been more, are more influenced by the world's thoughts and way of thinking. Why? Now I'm going to step on some toes and I'm going to step my own toes, okay? Because if we spend all our time listening, watching, being surrounded by everything the world puts out and we spend very little time even trying to understand the wonderful love letter from God. Now I know, be aware of what's going on in the world, but here's the thing. Life is short. Life is short. I'm not promised tomorrow. I'm not promised the rest of this day. None of us are. It's the grace of God that we're still here and our hearts, every single heartbeat is from God. Every breath is from God. God says, I gave you a book. Well, I understand it. Well, go to church and go to a church that, that they teach the Bible. You know, invest your time. If you know more secular songs than religious songs, you got a problem. I'm not trying to judge. I'm not trying, I'm not, I'm, I pray, God, I don't want to be harsh. I don't want to be harsh. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty? Again, salt is used for a preservative. Back before they had refrigerators, that's what they use, salt. And it adds flavor. There's distinction. There's, there's, and, there's other, and of course, when I grew up in Buffalo, salt was to, the snow and the ice and the <laughs> took care of that, right? That's what we're supposed to be in the world. It's, we're supposed to be different. It starts with our relationship with Jesus Christ. And, I'm, and everyone is a different area of maturity. And praise God, we have mature believers, we have immature, and we get to nurture one another and love one another. But I'm just saying is, is if it can cause you to compromise, then and you're no longer salty or no longer light, you're ineffective. So he said he tries to cause you to compromise. It's interesting, the book of Haggai. Should I, should I go there? Go to Haggai too. Go to Haggai too. Okay, I know. Don't overpromise, everyone says, right? <laughs> Haggai 2. Oh boy. You're saying, where's Haggai? <laughs> In the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. It's, <laughs> if you go to Matthew, go to your left, a couple books. Okay? Small book. Everyone find it. Yeah, I already skipped over it myself. <laughs> yeah, Haggai. Haggai's a prophet who um, the people have come back to the land and 
they have rebuilt their lives back in Jerusalem, but the temple has not been rebuilt. If you read uh, you know, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai is in the midst of all, of all that. Nehemiah comes back, helps build the walls of Jerusalem. Haggai is a prophet to encourage the people to, to rebuild the, the temple, but I'm, I'm, that's not the point I'm trying to make. Is Well, watch this. Look at chapter 2, Haggai 2, and uh, verse 11. I'll, I'll explain this. And, and this, again, this is, I'm not going to explain the whole context. There's a certain point I want to make here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Haggai 2.11, Ask now the priest about the law. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold or cooked wine or food or wine or oil or other food, will it become holy? And the priest said no. And Haggai said, if, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. Here's what happened. When the priest would offer a sacrifice, like a sin offering, they would take that sacrifice and they would sanctify it. It was holy. That sacrifice was holy. And if they're carrying that, like say in the fold of their, their, uh, their clothes, they're carrying it from place to place, that holiness wasn't transferable to, to other things. Like you can't just touch someone and make them holy. But then he says, if somebody is unclean, because they touched a dead body, made them unclean, and they touch you, that unholiness is transferable. <laughs> Compromise, fit, that's an illustration. I'm using that as an illustration, how it's easier for us to be affected by the sin and that thinking and that compromise, you know, to transfer to us. Then, does that make sense? It doesn't mean you can't be around believers, but you've got to be different. You're not of this world. You're, you've been born again. Right? You know, we have a mission on this earth. I mean, our final destiny is with Christ. Amen? Amen. New heavens, new earth. So he approaches with compromise. I have more to say, but I'm going to move on from there. Let's go on. Go back to Ephesians. Secondly, he approaches you as a concerned friend, as a companion who's concerned about you, a friend. See, if I see my enemy coming towards me, I'm going to put up my guard. I'm going to set my alarm. I'm going to lock my doors. I'm going to get myself ready. I see my enemy coming. But if my, co- if my friend comes, my guard has been dropped down. So if he can't come disguised as your enemy, he'll come disguised as a friend. He has my best interest in mind. After all, he is my friend. My guard has been dropped. He's now within my circle of friends. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus is surrounded by his disciples, and of course he knows one of them is a devil, Judas, who from the outside looked like a friend, but wasn't. Look at Psalm 55. Go to Psalm 55. <clears throat> Psalm 55. 
Verse 12. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has magnified himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my close companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet counsel together, walked in the house of God in the throng. This is a friend who is really his enemy. Now, I'm not saying be suspicious of all your friends. <laughs> but he'll approach you through that. Right? It's Absalom, the, the son of David, Go to Second Samuel. Let's go there. Go there. You know, they used to have the advertisements for the uh, yellow pages. They should have one for the Bible. Let your fingers do the walking, you know. The swiping. Bring it back. Second Samuel 15. Oh boy. Now what happened afterwards that Absalom prepared for himself a chariot. Absalom has been he's he's the son of David. He killed um it's his sister his his half brother who raped his sister and and David's banished him and now he's he's finally come back and and it says Absalom Um, Verse 2, used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a case to come to the king, the king's his dad, basically, for judgment, Absalom would call call them and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say, see, your words are good and right, but no man listened to you on part of the king. So watch this. These people are coming to the town. Absalom's waiting at the gates, and he's intercepting everyone who's coming through. Hey, you have a, you have a conflict to deal with? Hey, you know, the king is not even going to listen to you. I'll listen to you. Verse 4, Then Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has a case or judgment would come to me, and I would justify. I'll listen to your problems, basically. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would stretch out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. See how subtle that is? It's my son. And he's doing this to me. He's pretending to be a friend, but he really has an ulterior motive. Because what happens after this, he leads a revolt against David, and David has to flee. He comes to ordinary means. Nothing really stands out. He looks like a friend. He's concerned, but after a while, he's not just your friend. Now he's your master. Is anyone? Is this resonating with anyone? He comes as an angel of light, of course, right? So he leads you to, to his approach to compromise, to be a concerned friend, and thirdly, complacency. His third approach is complacency. False security. There's nothing to worry about. 
He tries to make you feel like there's nothing to worry about, that the spiritual battle, A, A doesn't exist. How many of you guys think the spiritual battle doesn't exist? I'm not going to embarrass anyone, but there are probably some people in here who don't think the spiritual battle exists. See, excuse me, he wants to inoculate you from the dangers of it. Don't you know how valuable your soul is? Why is it that he so wants you to not be effective for Christ or come to Christ or turn away from Christ? Because he knows eternal life was already paid for on the cross. And he knows He knows that once you are gone and dead and in hell, there's no way getting out. I think there's a quote from Spurgeon. I can't remember the exact wording. That our soul, I'm going to butcher the quote, I'm paraphrasing, but our soul must be so valuable that even that God and Satan are battling for it. Compromise and complacency are very similar. Complacency says, hey, i got nothing to worry about. Now, in Jesus Christ, you are secure in salvation. Okay, let's establish that. But now I'm looking at, if you are a believer in Christ, but now your life is completely ineffective. You haven't grown, you're bearing out fruit, you're you're in the same situation you've been. It's like, well, what's going on here? He wants to inoculate you from the dangers of the realities of spiritual warfare to be keep you ignorant of his, of his schemes, to convince you that some people are convinced that the devil even doesn't exist. I, I, I. See, there's no fear of God in this kind of person who's complacent. He has a false security. He, he has. No fear of God. It's like the man in Luke chapter 12. Go to Luke chapter 12. Verse 13. Um, or verse, uh, verse 16. And Jesus told a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, let me just pause here. This is not saying that there's anything wrong with being rich or having stuff. God has gifted some people with a gift of giving and given them success in business so they can share with others, right? And God has, has blessed us tremendously. So this is not the point here. The point here is the man is now relying on his riches and he has no concept or knowledge or, 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 or um, it doesn't even enter his mind that he assumes that he'll live years to come. And that, that very night, God will demand of his soul. It's like he says it right here. But God said to him, you fool. God gets to call us fools. 
<laughs> this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you prepared? So is the one who stores up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. This man trusts in his wealth, and he thinks he has no worries, but he doesn't realize that very day he's going to meet God and answer for his life to God. I remember we were, well, I'm not going to say, we're not going to, but we were somewhere and uh, there was a guy who dropped dead right by us. Just dropped dead. Like, he went shopping, yet he's with his wife, he's got his bags. Next thing you know, this girl screaming behind us, we look and he's dead. They worked on him. He wasn't expecting to die. He's with his wife and his kids, and he's you know he's got his he's having some vacation. I don't I I don't know where that man was spiritually. The complacency it's also found in the church. Look over back over to Revelation three. Is everyone still with me? Okay. And I I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just trying to teach the truth. Because I have to stand before God and say, and tell, and say, and He'll say, "Did you teach the, did you teach the fun stuff only, or did you teach the hard stuff as well?" Church in Laodicea. Um, look at verse seventeen. Jesus is speaking to a church. Verse 17 of Revelation 3, he says, Because you say, I'm rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Now, these were, these were church members, but the idea of complacency had set in. You do not know that you are wretched, and pitiable, and poor, and blind, and naked. They have rested, like this man in Luke 12, in their riches. False security. Okay. Salvation-wise, our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ, Right? My my thing is talking about spiritual warfare, where the complacency that, that if we're not in the battle, if we're not engaged, you know, we are we're dressed up, we've got our armor, we're dressed with the uniform, but our uniform's not dirty. And everywhere we go, there's there's we're supposed to engage, not against flesh and blood, right? Does that make sense? Okay, one more. Fourthly, critic. He approaches you as a critic with questions and doubts. Versus compromise, right? What was two? He's your your companion who's concerned about you, your friend. And then complacency, now as a critic. Now go to Genesis 3. Now this, I think, is where a lot of his attack on the church is going on. A whole generation is in this boat. Look at Genesis 3. He approaches you with questions and doubts. Indeed, look at verse um, Verse uh, 1, Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, 
you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now that's, here's the thing. It is okay to ask questions. We're not robots. I ask questions. I read my Bible. God, how about this? What about this? Right? I, I, and I want to find out the truth. Right? So it's not about never ask questions of God or, or never, you know. It's good to ask questions. But this is not that kind of question. This is the question of the critic. This is the question that wants, that wants to find fault with God. We have a whole generation of, of young people who, who, brought, who grew up with the idea, question everything, right? Yeah. Question authority. Doubt everything, basically. And yes, there are some who, want to, who are questioning and they're seeking for truth. I want to find out what the truth is, and that's my intent. That's good. But the bent of these kind of questions are questions so that you can find fault with God and accuse Him. So that you cannot even trust Him. So that you can reject Him. That's the question of the critic. And here's the thing. You question everything. In this generation, they question everything. And yet, they don't question everything. Because they'll believe anything. See, that's how subtle that is? Question everything about God, but then believe everything the world puts your way. And common sense has gone out the door. Common sense. What's a man? What's a woman? Okay, it doesn't take advanced degrees to define what those things are. But because he has said your gender and your biological sex are different, he's got you. No, it's not. They're the same thing. He's got you confused because you don't even know there's truth. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, what's truth? How do I know the truth? The truth is a person. Well, your truth is your truth. My truth is your truth. My truth. Yeah. Go to the top of a building and say, I now believe that gravity doesn't exist. Your truth will kill you. It sounds ludicrous to me. But the reality is that's how confused they are. And some of us too. Does God really love me? Because I really don't feel lovable. What's the truth? Jesus Christ paid for my sins. Why? Because he so loved the world. See that? Doubt and questions that are designed to cause uncertainty. So that once you entertain the devil's way of thinking and begin to be blinded by it. That's why it used to be back in the day, I'm thinking like back in the 1800s. <laughs> back in the day, it was you can read the scripture and even unbelievers assumed and took for granted this was God's word. Right? Like you didn't even have to defend it because he's like, yeah, that's the Bible. I know it's God's word, but I don't want to believe it. That's, that, that was the issue, right? Now you can't go very far without, like you're, you're speaking different languages. So I can't assume, if I'm reading scripture, I can't assume that people have a good knowledge base. I have to assume that maybe there's, there, maybe there's some that are like coming it from a different angle. 
Now the assumption is it's all wrong, it's man-made. No matter, it's a man-made book. That's why it's wrong. Right? And like I said, we have a whole generation that are now believing absolutely. And then they'll do is say, well, we're going to pass a law that if you disagree with our beliefs, then you're wrong. I won't get into that, but you guys know what I'm talking about. Fifthly, can I go fifthly? Okay. If I go a little long, that's okay. Because I want to finish this. Because <laughs> I want to move on <laughs> to more verses. Fifthly, conformist. His fifth approach is to, he approaches you with outward religious conformity. He says, it's okay if you just become a moral person. It's okay if you just focus on looking the part. God forbid if they knew the truth. So you got to, hey, dress, this, dress like them and do the religious motions like them. Is this what I do? Do I do this? Do I, you know? So you blend in and no one notices. And, and then you feel good because you're like, hey, I fulfilled my religious duty. Yeah. It's all outward. Now listen, you're not, you're, you're maybe fooling the people next to you. Because <laughs> they know as soon as you get in your car, you start, you're, you're, you're doing all kinds of crazy nonsense and you're, you're, you're not even, you're, you're, just, you're just, you're showing up. God, I'm doing my duty. At least I don't just do Christmas and Easter. At least I'm coming a couple times a year. He approaches you to focus only on the outward religious instead of having your heart truly changed. He had, he had a problem with the Pharisees. Look at Matthew 23. Look at Matthew 23. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read a a portion. Look at verse um, 23. 23, 23. This is Jesus talking. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat to swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You look the part on the outside, but inside your heart is not right. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside may become clean also. If your heart has not been changed, or if you're, if you're not surrendering your heart daily and say, God, forgive me, cleanse me, work on my heart, right? As even as a Christian, we're not immune to bad thoughts, right? Or evil thoughts. They're still, Lord, can you work on this? I, I, am, I, am, I repent. Repent. 
Woe to you, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus is not sounding like, you know, little baby Jesus, you know, meek and mild and, you know, like, oh, that's not offending anyone. He is, he's concerned with these guys. For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. And he goes on from there. He calls them uh, whitewashed tombs in another place full of dead man's bones. See, this is different. That, that this is, see, the, the Pharisee will be so concerned that everything looks good on the outside. Here's Jesus at a Pharisee's house, and here's a woman who's come in, and she's weeping, right? And he says to himself, the Pharisee's like, well, if this man was a man of God, he would know that this is a sinner. She's thinking about, he's judging her, dressed in all his Pharisaical garb. And Jesus knew his thoughts. Her life was changed from the inside out because of the forgiveness of Christ, right? And this man's life was never changed as far as the scripture records. Who cares what it looks like on the outside, right? Lazarus has been dead four days. Don't, oh, Lord, he'll stink. Do you care how it smells or do you care that the man gets life? Right? I wish sometimes we come to church and just be real. <laughs> but sometimes we can't because we're so afraid of the Pharisees next to us that will judge us because we happen to be a sinner or had a past. No, no, no. This is a place where God's grace reigns. Amen? Amen? And I know I'm speaking hard, I'm speaking with, <laughs> but my heart is, hey, listen. God wants to save the sinner and the Pharisee as well. Right? And Satan will approach you to be a, a, one who practices religiously, to rely on your religious conformity instead of focusing on Christ. Here's a subtleness. For a religious Pharisee, for one who's a, who's, who is focused on the outward, they so focus on what they do for God. Thank God, thank you, I do this, that, and the other. And I don't do this, that, and the other, right? They so focus, they keep tally sheets of how faithful they've, all the things they've done for God. They keep journals of how faithful they have been in prayer, and they post it on Facebook and Instagram, and they kind of show off their, their goodness, and they say, hey, look at me. They focus on what we do for God or in God's name, yet they are devoid of relationship with Jesus Christ. You guys are quiet. Wow. <laughs> Must be have some heavy stuff going out there, right? <laughs> Look at Revelation chapter 2. This is the problem in Ephesus. Look at chapter 2 of, 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 of Revelation. Revelation 2, 
to the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? This is the one who, who, this is what the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. This is about Jesus speaking. This is talking about this is Jesus speaking, talking about himself. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says, "I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false." And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Pause right there. I'm not saying the church here in Ephesus is like a Pharisee. What I'm saying is, is they got, they'll get caught up in all of their things for God that they're going to neglect the most important thing. Watch this, verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Okay, all the things I, these are things, I commend you for these things. These are great. You're, 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 you're being faithful and you're calling out those who are, or evil and not apostles and all this, all this stuff, but but the relational thing that's been lacking. Paul says, "I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ." I had like five more. I'm going to skip those for another time. What's the answer? What's the ultimate answer to the schemes, these approaches of the enemy? Go back to Ephesians. And it's real simple. Go back to Ephesians. In fact, go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. The ultimate answer, ultimately, here's the answer to the compromise, to the complacency, to the conformity and everything else. The ultimate answer is closeness to Christ. Watch this. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Actually, verse, let's, uh, verse 15, 115. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. I'm praying for you, he says. I'm thanking God for you and I'm praying for you. Here's what I'm praying. That the God, verse 17, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, I'm praying that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the full knowledge of him, so that... The eyes of your heart having been enlightened, that you will know the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And verse 19, here it is. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? There is a power that is available for the believer, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's this power in relation to knowing Christ toward us who believe. You see that? One commentator says the, the, about the phraseology here is that the goal that this, this, that this toward us who believe relates back to the power 
which means that the goal of God, of knowing God intimately, is that we would know His great power that is directed towards us. Okay, watch this. Watch this. If the if the goal here is ultimately intimacy and close relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's what the devil is after. Genesis three, he comes into the garden. What happens in the garden? Man met with God in the garden. He'll attack that place of intimacy. If he, ca- he can, if he can cause you to become a critic of God, so that you're like you don't trust God anymore, you've lacked the intimacy, right? If he can cause you to be compromised, that's out of that uh, uh, out of the place of the intimacy. If he he wants you to distrust God, distrust God so much that you actually hate him or want to serve the devil rather than him. It goes back to that point. You see that? The goal here is to be so... um, to have your heart so satisfied with Jesus Christ, to be so entrusted with Christ, to to be so um, filled with Christ that anything, that, that nothing else entices you. You've got the real deal. And here comes the devil with his little trinkets. Why would I want that when I got the real deal? You see that? It's, it's, it's very, but that's the goal here. Why? Because just as Jesus Christ, let's see, it says Jesus Christ was with the Father, right? This intimacy between the Father and the Son in the beginning, right? He invites us to that same place. So it's not God saying like this. It's God tearing down the veil of the temple from top to bottom so that we have full access to the Father and then nothing gets between us and Christ. Okay, watch this. Go to Mark 3. I'm going to finish on this. Okay, I'm, I'm done. Mark 3. Watch this. And uh, <clears throat> verse 14. Oh, verse 13, then 14, okay? And we'll finish. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and summoned or call to himself those whom he wanted, and they came to him. He's calling his disciples. And by the way, he's also calling us. And they came to him. And verse 14, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be what? There it is. He appointed... Twelve, whom he named apostles, to be with him and to send them out to preach. You're like, you can just skip right over. You can just breeze over that and not realize the significance of that. The whole goal of the, the disciples and the apostleship, and the whole goal of us as disciples as well, is to be with him. Because as they're walking with Christ and they're hearing him teach, they're learning how to walk like Jesus. Remember when we we would be with my father, my brother and I, and we would be at like at a store, walking, and like you guys are related. That's your dad. How do you know? Because you walk just like him. There's a little Italian walk. (laughs) (laughs) 
See, when you're with someone, things rub off, right? And the goal is to be with Jesus. That's your best defense against any of the schemes and techniques and tactics and approaches of the devil is the witness with Christ. And that's a daily thing, right? That's a moment-by-moment moment thing, too. Somebody asked me, how often do I pray? Well, hopefully pray without ceasing. Don't just pray when the big storms come. Don't just pray when the earthquake happens. Pray when you're sitting outside in the backyard and it's nice, you've got iced tea back there and you're reading the Bible. Talk to, talk to God in the car. Talk to God wherever you're at. When you're shopping, have a conversation with God. That's relationship. We're invited to relationship. And that's the best defense against any of this other stuff. Right? Amen? Bless the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you invite us to this relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I want to pray for anyone who may be here in this room or even watching online who don't know you, or maybe they thought they had a relationship, or maybe they, they're very religious, but maybe they just don't know you, or they want to know you, and they want to surrender their lives to you and receive you, Lord. I pray, Lord. Your, your word says, Lord, that all who come to me, I will, I will no way cast away. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Lord, I pray for anyone who may be here or even watching online or listening, that they would place their faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross, shedding his innocent blood in our place, in that person's place. And that he died, was buried, and three days later he rose again. And that he lives, because he lives, we can live also. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would call many to know you and to follow your son. That you would add to your kingdom even this day, Lord. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are believers, who maybe are struggling with our walk, or maybe we've been distracted or found ourselves in maybe just in a bad place, that you would, as Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, you've left your first love, that they would come back to their first love, strip away all the extraneous other things that are in place or in the way of simple devotion and relationship with Christ. Lord, your word says that you are gentle and meek. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Lord, may every one of us, Lord, come to you in complete surrender. Maybe, may we be with you and walk like you and learn of you, God. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless the Lord. Why don't we stand up? I want to read the, uh, the benediction from uh, 
different benediction than we normally do. We always do the ironic blessing. Oh, let's do uh, let's do one over here. Now may the God of peace who brought you up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus, equip you with every good thing to do his will by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. You guys have a blessed week. We'll see you, Lord willing, this coming weekend for the couples. Otherwise, we'll see you next Sunday. Bless the Lord. Go away.